to seek to better understand what is happening at the cross of Jesus, the key phrase in this passage we just read is the phrase, it is finished. It is finished. That's what we're going to center our entire teaching on these next few weeks. What is finished? What has been done that never needs to be done again? And I think the longer we stand under the cross, whether it's this is the first time we've experienced the cross or the thousandth time we sit under the cross, the more we sit or stand under the cross, the more we realize we need what has happened there. We need what is finished. We need what has never needed to be done again. Because either we will trust that it has happened and it is finished, either we will trust that what has done is done, or we will spend our whole lives trying to make it happen on ourselves. Either we will trust in what has been done, or we will spend all of our days trying to manufacture it on our own. So over these next few weeks, I want to journey together through six different windows, different perspectives of the cross and what has been done. Because no single perspective, no single understanding, no single message, no single sermon can ever really encapsulate everything that has been done on the cross for us. No single understanding of it can understand the magnitude of the event of the crucifixion. But my hope is as we look through these various windows, that we would gain a better understanding and appreciation for what exactly God has done that never needs to be done again, for it is finished. And the longer we sit under the cross, the more it will well up in us gratitude and worship for the one who has done it all for us. The author and uh, leader theologian N.T. Wright writes about this, trying to understand the power of the cross. And he says this, The point in trying to understand the cross better is not so we can congratulate ourselves for having solved an intellectual crossword puzzle, but so that God's power and wisdom may work in us, through us, and out into the world that still regards Jesus' crucifixion as weakness and folly. See, the whole point here is not that we just gain a whole bunch of knowledge for knowledge's sake, but the more we stare at the cross and understand what is finished, the more the power of the cross and the power of God's wisdom works in us to recognize we need what was done and to live under that. And there are things to explore and things to discuss and things to lean in, and we're going to do that over these next few weeks, but we don't simply want to lean in for knowledge's sake. We want the power of God that is on display in the cross to be at work in our life as well, to surrender more of our life in gratitude and in worship for the one who has completed all that needs to be done and done on the cross. So wherever you are in a life with faith in Jesus, as we explore these different kind of perspectives, my prayer for us is that you and I would be more in awe of Jesus, more in awe of the work that he has done, 
for us. And we would surrender more of our life to his power and his goodness and his kingship, for he alone is worthy of everything. We're going to read a densely packed passage this morning because nobody has ever helped us to understand, to help the world to understand the, the power of the cross. Nobody has done more of that than the Apostle Paul and the writings of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you and encourage you to open to Romans chapter 3. Because Romans chapter 3 is a densely packed passage that will understand one of the first windows into understanding the crucifixion. That the crucifixion enables our justification. How we are declared right before a holy, loving God. How are we made right? Paul says, is by the crucifixion of Jesus. So in this densely, theologically packed passage, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the right, the one who justifies those who have faith in jesus two times in this short densely packed passage the apostle paul says that he does this to demonstrate his righteousness he does this he this crucifixion of jesus is to demonstrate his righteousness. So if you're a journaler or a note taker, or if you don't mind writing in your Bible, circle that phrase in verse 25 and 26 to demonstrate his righteousness. What Jesus does in the crucifixion at the cross is to demonstrate God's righteousness, to allow us to be in right standing, justified in right standing with God. And to understand all of this and what that really means to us, you have to understand that righteousness, the term righteousness is a relational term. It's a relational understanding. It is when two people are in right standing, in right relationship with one another. When we live up to the terms and the expectations of a relationship. So to use an example, a citizen in a country is a righteous citizen when they live up to the expectations and the terms of what it means to be a citizen of that country. Or in a marriage relationship, a spouse is a righteous spouse when they live up to the expectations and the, the terms of their marriage covenant. And the most primary relationship that we have is our union with the living God. And to be righteous means that we live up to the terms and the expectations of that right relationship, to be on right terms with God. And no human being, other than Jesus, no human being has lived up perfectly to the expectations and the terms of our relationship with God. No human being. 
There's no preferential treatment for those that grew up in a Christian home or those that came with two parents or those that have you know, preferential stuff or status along the way. There's no preferential treatment. Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God. No human being has lived up to the expectations and the terms of a relationship with the living God. We are not righteous on our own. And Paul's letter to the Romans, he's wrestling with this relationship between an unholy humanity on one side and a holy God, righteous God, on the other. How can these two coexist? How is it that an unholy, unrighteous humanity can exist with a righteous, holy God in relationship? How is that possible? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And regardless of how you think about sin, where it came from, or whether it really exists along the way, no one throughout time in history would really argue with the truth that human beings are really good at being bad. We are professionals at hurting people. Individually and collectively, we are just really good at behaving badly. Like Adam and Eve and all of human history before us, we want to be God ourselves and we clamor after power and we hurt people along the way. We are, to use the scripture's words, dead in our sins. All have fallen short. None of us are righteous in our own behaviors, in our own life. And yet God is righteous. He has lived up to the terms of our relationship, of our life with him. So how can God, who's righteous and holy, restore the fractured relationship with those of us who are unrighteous and unholy? This is what Paul is wrestling with. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And for Paul's understanding, the way in which a fully holy, righteous God can enter into a life with us is because of the cross. The cross of Jesus makes it available for us to be justified, made right, not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of God. Not on our doing, but on His doing. That is in keeping with His essential character of holiness and righteousness. Because God is holy, and anything that is unholy would be fully consumed in His presence, the question for Paul and for people down through the ages is how can God be fully holy, fully righteous, and yet mercifully, lovingly accept us with our unholiness and unrighteousness? God has to deal with the unholiness, the unrighteousness, to welcome us to bring us in. Such kind of action to welcome unholy people by a holy God would seem unjust, unrighteous. It would seem wrong to do. And this is what the biblical writers are wrestling with. How can a holy, righteous God welcome an unholy, unrighteous people? It seems unjust. It seems contrary to your character. You have to Deal with the sin the way that the sin is meant to be dealt with. You need to bring about the righteousness or the justice upon that which was broken. You have to bring, be just if you're going to be 
God. And so the writers and Paul is wrestling with how does a holy, righteous God welcome unholy, unrighteous people? Think about the prodigal son story, if you're familiar. Prodigal son squanders his father's wealth and then returns, and he doesn't get what he deserves. He doesn't get, quote, justice poured out on him. The father welcomes him with open arms, right? And Jesus says this is how a holy, living God treats those of us who are unholy when we return to him with open arms, even while we're still unholy. It's great news for us. But the older son in the story, he's upset because he sees the father's actions as not only scandalous but unjust. How could you accept somebody without punishment, without the consequences of what they have done? How can you welcome somebody with open arms, someone unholy and unrighteous who have fractured your relationship and just wink at sin and just skirt it under the rug? How can you do that? If you are just and righteous and holy, how can you accept that which is unholy and unrighteous? So the older brother is not just sibling rivalry and jealous. He's looking at the father going, what you are doing is not right. It's not in keeping with your righteous character or with your just character. It's not true to who you are. For who you are must deal with righteousness or with justice and bring consequences upon that which is needing the consequences. And this is what Paul's wrestling with. For a person who fully knows the weight of the sin of the world, how can we who are so dead in our sin be welcomed by a holy, living, righteous God? His righteousness demands justice. How can that be? And if God were to welcome us with open arms and just grab us up into his lap, that seems to discredit his holiness. Seems like it's not just. Maybe he's just winking at our sin, dismissing our sin. Well, kids will be kids, he says, right? It's not that big a deal. Our sin really isn't that big of a deal. How can he freely accept us? Either he's not just, or he's not holy, or he's sweeping our sin under the rug. And Paul says none of those are true. For God is holy, he is just, and he certainly isn't sweeping it under the rug. See, today people wonder, how can God be really God and good if he doesn't just accept everyone? But for the biblical writers and for Paul, the holiness and the righteousness of God says, how can God be God and still accept everyone? It's not that he condones our sin. It's not that he sweeps it under the rug. And it certainly isn't because he's unjust or unrighteous or unholy. It's because of the cross. It's because his justice and his righteousness is on display at the cross. That and that only is how we are able to live in a righteous relationship with God. The whole narrative of a God who sweeps our sin under the rug and doesn't care all that much about it, just kind of brings us in. There's no justice there. That, that undermines the entire narrative of the Christian story. And it shrinks the glory of God. It, it brings God's glory down. And while it may seem encouraging or maybe even inviting to think of God as a holy or a, a, 
an eternal kind of teddy bear in the sky that just loves us with no big deal. The darkness around us, the darkness in our own life recognizes that God needs and has to be fully just. And there has to be consequences. The wrath of God, in other words, is a necessary reaction of a loving God towards sin who cares deeply about us and about the fracture that our sin and unrighteousness bears on our lives has to have justice and has to have wrath. So how can a holy, loving, righteous, just-filled God welcome unholy, unrighteous people without compromising his holiness, without compromising his justice or his righteousness, without dismissing our sin as no big deal, shoving it under the rug. How can he do that? Paul says in Romans 3, God presented Christ on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement. And through his shed blood on the cross, we receive it by faith. We are made right, not because of our actions, but because of the actions of Jesus on the cross. At the cross, through the death of Jesus, God has covered and rubbed out our sin. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't wink at it. He satisfies the justice of God. The justice that our sins deserve is poured out onto Jesus on the cross. Then so our sin no longer presents a problem for us. The fracture has been healed because the righteousness, the justice of God is freely poured out onto Jesus at the cross. How can a holy, righteous, just-filled God welcome us? Because his justice was seen at the cross. So God justifies us, restores us, brings us back to right relationship. Not by dismissing our sin, not by condoning our sin, not by winking at it, thinking kids will be kids. It's okay, let it go but by the death of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Without the cross, we are still broken and under our sin. So Paul's great answer for us, how can God tolerate us without condoning or inflicting full judgment on us, what we deserve? How can God welcome us with open arms without giving us what we deserve? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Where the ultimate sacrifice has been made by Christ. Complete. He says it is finished. No longer needs to be done. We are now justified in right relationship because of God's activity in our life to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he did it on the cross. So as that truth settles in, and then you begin to see why, until you understand what actually happened on the cross, we will try to make ourselves holy, make ourselves right enough, do enough religious things, stay off the naughty list, do all the things we can in order to make ourselves right. But until you see it is finished at the cross, you will not live under the freedom that comes from Christ. You will cower in fear of God in the corner and you will not simply know the love and the experience of a free life 
For freedom came the price of the cross. And so we sit and we sit and we stand under the cross in awe and wonder and majesty and glory of what God has done for us. Now before you start thinking about God as some angry deity in the sky that's just waiting and demanding a sacrifice to take off his wrath and wants us to you know, have a human sacrifice of some kind, like all the great pagan myths and, and religions of the world that say God is, just needs a sacrifice to, to appease his anger. He's this angry God in the sky. Notice who the sacrifice is. God never demands a human sacrifice. The sacrifice is not a human child or a person to throw themselves into the volcano to appease the gods of the world. The sacrifice is God himself takes upon the judgment of sin himself. He doesn't demand you do it, for it is done in him at the cross. All judgment is poured out on the only begotten Son of the God, Jesus the Christ. God is not an angry God in the sky just waiting for some human sacrifice to appease his anger and bitterness. He holds it himself. The sacrifice is God. Jesus hangs on the cross the only begotten Son, the Word made flesh, the Creator becoming created, bears the righteous judgment, the wrath of God on Himself. And as He hangs, darkness falls over the earth. And for those three terrifying hours, He cries out in agony and finally says, It is finished. God does that to demonstrate His justice his holiness demanded a sacrifice and God's love provided it for you and for me remember who the sacrifice is this is not some thing some person on the side who's good enough this is God himself God expresses his holy wrath against himself and then cries out it never needs to be done again you are not right because of what you do. You are not right because of the religious things you do. You are made right because of the cross and because of the cross only. So when the loving, living God accepts you with open arms, while you are still unholy, while you are still unrighteous, while you are still broken, when he welcomes you with open arms, he's not compromising on his deity. He's not condoning your sin. He's not ignoring moral accountability for it is all poured out on Jesus at the cross and he embraces you because it is finished. When that truth settles into us, an overwhelming worship and gratitude ought to well up into our hearts and to our bodies and we surrender our will to his will. God's word to us is always grace. Action in our life to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and it is based on his righteousness, what is demonstrated for us at the cross. See, my friends, my hope 
whether you have heard this for the thousandth time or this is the very first time you are hearing it, is that it would deepen your love for God, deepen your desire to offer yourselves wholly and wholehearted devotion to the one who makes you right, not by what you do, but by what has been done. May that inspire worship and a wholehearted devotion for him and for him alone. How does God welcome you, restore you, because of what you have done? Certainly not. Thanks be to God, or it is finished. It is done. And I stand freely justified, forgiven, not because of my righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. Let me pray for us and for you today. Father, we ask that you would inspire and equip us to see you more clearly and the work that is done on our behalf at the cross. May it well up in extemporaneous worship, gratitude, for you are worthy of everything. You have made us right, declared us righteous because of the righteous work of Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.